Welcome to the Limitless Grit Podcast, where we have conversations with social entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and ordinary people who are achieving extraordinary results. And now, here is your host, Shristi Gajarel. Hey, what's up, everyone? Welcome to today's episode of the Limitless Grit Podcast. I have Steve Monroe on today's episode, who was born in Canada, then was living around the world working for the UN and decided to quit his job at the UN and move to Bali with his wife and create this world-class co-working space called Hubud. So I was personally interested in his story because being someone who worked at a bank, I always was curious as to can I be an entrepreneur or can I start a new career? And Steve was someone who was really established in the UN and decided to quit his job and start a completely different career while having kids and uh, while being married. So it was really interesting to listen to his story and understand that you can truly make a change in your life in any time as long as you're persistent and as long as you're dedicated at what you do. So so I hope you enjoyed this episode. I hope Steve inspires you as much as he has inspired me. And without further ado, Steve Mundo, everyone. Steve, welcome to the podcast. We're really, really excited to have you. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. Um, so I know you because I work at your co-working space here in Hubud in Bali, but most people might not know about you. So if you want to give us a little background about yourself. Sure. I am, uh, so my name is Steve Monroe. I'm Canadian. I grew up in Toronto. Uh, I escaped uh, Canada in its winters when I was around 21. And so I've spent the last 19 years um, for the most part in Asia. Uh, first 10 years was working for the United Nations in different places, and uh, the rest has been here in Bali. Oh, wow. So I was like um, listening to your TED Talk, which is really, really cool. So you were giving tour for a wine shop at one point, then you started working for the United Nations, like uh, diffusing mines in Cambodia, then now you're here in Bali as a serial entrepreneur. So how did you pick and choose different profession or it picked and chose you? Hmm. I guess it, it's more accurate to say it picked and chose me. Um, I've often likened myself to Forrest Gump a little bit. <laughs> I, uh, I kind of wander through my life and, and find myself in one. Um, so yeah, I mean, I've been lucky, I guess, in the sense that life has taken me down different interesting paths or presented different paths uh, to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess my role in it has been choosing to, to walk down that path. Right, even though it, even when the the end wasn't always clear. So it's like more intuition, because uh, I think when you went to Cambodia to see your girlfriend, then you didn't have any plan on working in the United Nations. So, what made you just take such a big decision and just move to the other side of the world? Well, it was, it was kind of like that. I went with my so my wife. Now we've been married for for most of that time that I've been outside of Canada. So we were together in university, uh, and then she got a job in Uzbekistan. Actually, so that's okay. So I followed her to Uzbekistan with her job, and I wasn't sure what I was going to do, but it sounded like an adventure regardless. Right? I didn't really have set plans. Um, so I was kind of gainfully unemployed there for about four and a half days. And then I I happened to meet somebody um, that was the head of an agency. They were looking for communication support and and it kind of fit what I was was into. So I would say a lot of it has been like that. Um, You know, uh, being willing to go places or being willing to try things or being willing to sometimes go somewhere without having any idea what what was going to happen. 
Um, yeah. How was working at the UN? Um, so some of the work, I think I was very lucky with a lot of the work I had with the UN. So my main three jobs as a full-time employee were one in Uzbekistan as the communications coordinator for the UN Office on Drugs and Crime. So it was the kind of organized crime and, and uh, narcotics part of the UN, and it was across the five Central Asian republics, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan. I was based in Tashkent. Um, so it was amazing. I mean, it was a really exciting time. I worked with an incredibly dynamic uh, boss uh, went from Italy. Um, so it was a great experience. It was a really positive experience. Um, in Sri Lanka, I went as then, um, I, I guess, kind of an intern um, funded by the Canadian government. And this time, my wife followed me. Um, and she was, we had just had our first son. So we, we, went, to, we went to Sri Lanka. Um, and two and a half months later, the tsunami hit the big uh, oh, tsunami wow. of 2004. Yeah. Um, so that kind of upended everything in Sri Lanka, of course. So I went from working on a small post-conflict project to a, a very large tsunami relief project and all of a sudden found myself managing tens of millions of dollars. Um, and, you know, that kind of catapulted things and then, you know, moved into um, landmine clearance in Cambodia. Um, what is landmine clearance? Sounds so cool. Yeah, well, I always say I had a very dangerous job sitting behind a desk delegating. So you go here, you go there, which is partly true. Basically, um, Cambodia is one of the kind of most heavily affected countries by landmines and unexploded ordnance. So after the conflict, and in their case, it was um, the civil war with the Khmer Rouge in the 70s. So this is going back a long ways, right? Oh, wow. Um, then the Vietnamese occupation during the 80s, early 90s. Then the UN came in. So there was kind of a decade and a half of active conflict and, and landmines were used extensively. And bombing was done extensively, mainly by the US uh, in Vietnam. So kind of during that era, they were bombing in Vietnam, but also in Laos and Cambodia, that whole region. Um, so often when bombs get dropped from planes, they don't do what they're supposed to do and explode on impact. So they sometimes scatter into fields, and so you've got all these kind of landmines in and of themselves, right? So, so um, when I joined UNDP in Cambodia, I think there was around 850 casualties per year still at that time. So people are still dying. Correct. Yeah, so 800 and something per year. No, not all deaths. Some of them were also uh, injuries. Um, but so still very much a very, very large problem. Um, <clears throat> so my role in it essentially was um, we raised money and we deployed money. So the Cambodian um, government or Cambodian nationals um, have a huge body of, of expertise, a huge decades-long experience in clearing landmines. So it wasn't so much... Uh, a technical assistance program where you come in with a certain set of expertise, which I don't have. I'm mm -hmm. not ex-military, so mm -hmm. that's not my, my field. Um, but in Cambodia, you really had uh, you really have had Cambodians who've been clearing landmines for decades. So it was more um, looking at prioritization. Mm -hmm. um, so you know you have finite resources. Where do you deploy them first? Um, as well as some legislative stuff. There was a big um, uh, new treaty to ban the use of cluster munitions. So mm -hmm. there's a lot of work with that, which was really exciting. Um, so yeah, largely, largely it was. I guess my my roles were were very good, mm -hmm. I, and I, I learned a tremendous amount. I had some great people I worked with. Um, on the downside was um, what I found working for the United Nations was it's an organization filled with uh, wounded idealists. Mm -hmm. I would say. What and does that mean? Means I think almost everybody that joins the UN or a similar organization does so from the heart, right? Um, they they're on mission. 
They want to change the world. They're organized, or organized and motivated by uh, a higher calling, I guess. Um, and some would say that is unrealistic. Some would say that's naive. Um, some would even say that's arrogant mm -hmm. in some cases. You know, me, this Canadian guy is going to go to Sri Lanka and change the world. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, there's, there's, there's something there to that. Um, but, you know, when you're working within a system um, that is so highly bureaucratic mm -hmm. and highly complex as the UN almost has to be because it's because it's so huge, mm -hmm. right? I mean, that's what people don't understand. My, my agency, which is one of many, it's a big one, but it's one of many, had... I think 16,000 full-time employees, wow. $5 billion a year in projects and turnover, and 150 offices around the world, right? Yeah. I mean, it's massive, right? Yeah. And so, of course, there's, there's layers of bureaucracy and transparency measures and stuff like that. Um, but what it means, if you if you were kind of, uh, you know, you want to get out there and do stuff, and what you find yourself spending the majority of your time doing is spending time in meetings, filling out reports, mm. creating matrices, telling stories without feeling connected with work you're doing, the impact you're having, yeah. um, it makes it tough. I mean, do you think UN has to be bureaucratic or can it do its job without that much of office work? Both. I, I mean, I think um, I think there are roles within the UN. So my, my role with the with the landmine project in particular was, was fantastic. I had very little to complain about where that was concerned. Yes, I have to do paperwork. Yes, I have to do some other stuff. But, but largely it was... Um, It, it was good. It was, it was no complaints on that side. Um, I think bureaucracy is the price we pay for transparency, mm -hmm. right? So you can say, well, just take the money and go with it and be good. It's hard to do that with 16,000 employees, right? And, and it's public money, right? It's money that's given by national governments, that's given by taxpayers like mm -hmm. yourself, right? So, um, so it does have to be accountable, and that's complicated. For sure, I think there's better ways to do things than they're doing. So... Um, That's their challenge. That's that's the challenge the UN will will have in remaining relevant in terms of it being um, more than a policy body, right? Because they have a policy function, international justice and human rights function. Um, but in terms of kind of going out and getting dirty and, and executing projects in the field mm -hmm. and things like that, if they want to do that, they need to be better. So my podcast is about choosing courage over fear. And I feel like your life in a way defines that because you made one of the most courageous decisions. I think we were talking last um, a few days ago, mm -hmm. you made one of the most courageous decisions of not taking your dream job at the UN because it didn't feel right mm -hmm. and just moving to Bali. Mm -hmm. uh, if you want to talk about that decision or mm -hmm. what was your thought process when you decided to do that and what made you choose Bali? Okay. Um, Well, the thought process, that's, that's sometimes maybe I think that's being generous. Um, <laughs> the emotional knee-jerk reaction was uh, we, we kind of had this feeling of we have to get out of here. Um, and by was out Sri of Lanka here, or Cambodia? Cambodia. 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 And I love living in Cambodia. Really, I, I love it. I've gone back several times. It's a great place. Um, and there was a few things at, at one when we were quite unhealthy in Cambodia. Um, it turns out we were living in a moldy house, mm -hmm. just kind of bad luck. And but So that, that put a real cloud over us. We had young children and we were getting pneumonia and so that causes a lot of stress and feelings of anxiety and guilt mm -hmm. as parents right um i think it was a it was a couple of conversations and i suppose one thought um a single thought that that kind of ruined my un career which was um i was offered a, a what would have been a very smart job for me to take career-wise mm -hmm. i knew i probably wouldn't like it nearly as much i wouldn't like it nearly as much as my my job that I had, but it was a very smart career move. And, and on the cusp of almost taking that, um, I realized that 
I was going to take this job largely for ego reasons <laughs> because it was going to take me a, a step to reaching a certain level, to be yeah. a country director by the age of 38. That was my... That was what was written on my wall. Yeah. Country director, 38. Did you realize that you would be taking that job for ego reason at that point? Or is that something you have realized over time? A bit of both. So I, when I thought about what's motivating me to take this job, um, I guess, I, I don't know that I would have called it ego. Mm-hmm. I don't know that I would have maybe had that level of self-awareness at that point. Um, but I know when I thought... You know, if I look around at all the country directors I knew, or we're not necessarily the actual country directors, but people at that level, um, the truth was a lot of them didn't actually have lives that I thought I would want, right? And and I mean, I don't know everything about everybody's life, but but it really made me question, like, hmm, okay, I'm on tar- I'm on track to hit my target, mm-hmm. but am I still aiming at the right thing? Mm-hmm. And that kind of sat in my head and 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 kind of ended my career actually mm-hmm. because I, I just I couldn't reconcile myself with it and um, so it really felt like we had this decision to live that life or to step off into something else but we had nothing else to step off into but it, mm-hmm. that's that was how stark the choice felt and uh, and ultimately we we chose to step off you know um, so it was and, you and your wife for sure yeah yeah um we both, I think we both had, I think my wife had had reservations about herself in the UN even earlier. Um, you know, just the way she operates, the way she thinks. Um, she's kind of very intolerant of inaction, you know. Um, I guess I'm more so. I'm more like, we'll find a way to get there. And she's like, no, no, but we just have to go there. And, you know, I said, no, no, we'll find a way to get there. So I suppose I survive better in a bureaucracy a little bit. I find a way to, to maneuver. But but that's really what it kind of felt like after a while, was always finding a way to maneuver to, to get to a solution that was okay. Yeah. You know? And so... Um, so when we, we decided to leave the UN, and, we, and, you know, it was one of those decisions where when we made the decision, or even put it on the table it became really clear really quickly that it was the right decision. So how long did it take you to decide? Probably about 35 minutes. <laughs> I can remember where we were where we were sitting. My wife had, had left to go to Singapore to take our son to get a heart checkup because he'd gotten really sick. And because we of had the to, mall, Yeah, yes. so we, we got medevaced and, and so that puts us into a high stress. I've been offered this job and been having this conversation in yeah. my head forever. We came back together and, and kind of had a conversation, like literally... I don't know if I want to keep doing this. I don't know if we can keep doing this with our family and our health. Should we consider leaving? Yeah, let's leave. And that was that was it. It was in Thailand. It was in Krabi. We, we kind of were there on holiday. Do you ever think like what your life would have been if you had taken that job? Mm, yes. Or did uh, you regret like first few months of not taking that job? Well, I, I do sometimes think about what my life would have been like. I think in terms of whether I regretted it at the time, I didn't regret it at the time. I left, we left, it felt 100% right, we took a long trip traveling around and came to Bali the following, uh, in time for the following school year. And, uh, but I will say I, I suffered um, from a kind of crippling lack of identity mm. for my first one to two years of being here. Like really, I, I you know, people would say, um, I was used to going into a new environment, like moving to a new country and saying, hi, I'm Steve Monroe. I'm the project manager for landmine clearance in Cambodia for UNDP. Not in Cambodia, for UNDP. I felt good. 
it felt good and people knew exactly then where to put me in Cambodia. Yeah. Okay, UNDP, he's here, da, 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 this field, this position, this yeah. level. There was a box and that box was somehow comforting, right? Yeah. And it's a kind of sexy sounding box yeah. outside the box, so that also doesn't hurt the ego, right? So when I came to Bali and then I introduced myself and I said, hi, my name is Steve. I just, you know, yeah. I, I wanted there to be something more, right? Yeah. To explain who I was, why I was important, why I was valuable, why they should talk to me. Um, so I really felt that acutely. Mm -hmm. I don't know, um, I, I mean, a lot of people speak of that, mm -hmm. I know, but um, yeah, I think maybe I, I very much associated with my job, right? That's yeah. a lot of people do. So, so I really, I really had that to overcome and that was kind of an interesting um, growth edge, I guess, was trying to get to the point where I was comfortable enough with me mm -hmm. rather than, you know, kind of having this t-shirt to wear, so yeah. to speak. I think it's so interesting because like I'm 24 and I decided to quit my job and travel like, when I was 22 but it took me two years to and I don't have kids I don't have husband I don't have boyfriend and like it was and it still took me two years to not identify with my identification of a banker and right. like finally do it and it's just like I, I still can't fathom that you had the you know, courage to quit a high-paying job in a really respected organization while having family and kids and make a decision to come to another country and start from fresh. Right. Like, that That to me is, like, absolutely insane. It is. Well, when you say it like that, it does sound insane. <laughs> so, yes, maybe I'm insane. It's entirely possible. Or maybe everybody else is insane. I'm not sure. No, but, uh, but I, I think it might be a bit of both. I think it might be a bit of both. Because I think, um, I think my experience, although, you know, uh, my, I, if I if I want to, I can have a nice spicy Facebook life, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, we travel a lot. We live in an exotic location. You're we on have Facebook. A, I, I am on Facebook, okay. but I, let's say I don't exploit it mercilessly mm -hmm. to, to torment my my more you know sedentary mm -hmm. friends. Um, I've been told often that you know your life sounds so something so yeah. in the blank, right? Um, and so. So I have that, but my but really my life experience was actually in in most ways that matter, um, so similar to so many people's, whether or not they're traveling or they're clearing landmines or doing banking. Mm -hmm. um, I was following I was following a path. I was doing something that was responsible. I had a job with a good salary, had a good pension. Um, you know, I'd had school fees, so there was all that kind of security stuff in there. I had career progression because that's what you're supposed to do, right? <laughs> you're supposed to progress, mm -hmm. whatever that means, or even if you're not sure you want what's at the top, mm -hmm. but you know, you're supposed to progress. And and I had these things, and I had a, I was married, and I had children that were minus yeah. the mold, largely healthy, and so in other words, nothing was wrong with my life, mm -hmm. right? I had nothing to complain about. Mm -hmm. Certainly, most of my friends in Canada would have said, "You really have nothing to complain yeah. about." Um, and yet something felt wrong, right? Or something felt missing and lacking. And I think there was a lot of guilt around that or confusion or, you know, I'm here, I've made it. I've, you know, yeah. why do I feel the way you I feel? You still don't fit in. Still don't fit in and, I, and it still doesn't feel enough. Yeah. But, but I don't, it's not like I want more money or I want more something. It's like something feels like there's, there's a hole, mm -hmm. right? And, and for me, that was that was really confusing. It was a little guilt-inducing. I felt kind of ashamed of it because I couldn't explain why. Mm -hmm. um, but that experience I've heard from other people literally thousands of times since yeah. opening Hubert, right? And mm -hmm. so it's like, in some ways, my life sounds a certain way, but in, in other ways, it's actually very. It's a very common 
theme, I think, today. So someone who's going through the same process like you are going through, which is a lot of people I talk to my friends, okay. especially who are millennials, mm-hmm. who are going through the same thing, I'm going through the same thing. Like, what advice would you give so they can find their path, like you have found? That's a good question. I, so I'm, I'm going to try to answer that without giving, like, weird, trite um, sound bites. I think, you know, normally in this case, people say, I should say, follow your passion. And mm-hmm. I think maybe that's true. Maybe you should. I think um, I think today, and, and I talk about this a lot in different places. Like, so let's say millennials, right? This this generation. Um, I would say, and I'll say this without any um, any information or data to back it up. Mm-hmm. I'll just say it as if it's true. You you nod like you believe me. I think that one of the fundamental differences between this generation and let's say the last generation, and I'm somewhere in the middle. So, um, was millennials feel almost entitled to work that they feel passionately about, right? Now, if you think of like Maslow's hierarchy mm-hmm. of needs, this triangle, and you, you know, you deal with your food and you're surviving, yeah. and you get some shelter, maybe then you get some emotion, mm-hmm. and you get down to the bottom, like the advanced height is self-actualization mm-hmm. purpose. I think that is flipped on its head. So I think there are lots of people that are, like let's say you're making a decision at the age of 22 to leave what will be a lucrative, mm-hmm safe-ish, I mean, let's say the financial sector is always a little unsafe, but, you know, safe-ish type of career, right? So you are giving up your financial freedom, you know, I mean, I don't know how much money you have in the bank, but it's, you know, that path is a better path to, like, hierarchy three, Mm -hmm. right? To chase number five, right? true. And that is happening more and more. And some people, like, that's a more radical decision than than most people make. But I do think... um, you know, it's harder and harder for companies to keep people, to retain them, mm-hmm. um, if they're not satisfied with the work they're doing. Yeah, that's absolutely true. So my, my advice is don't fight that. Um, it doesn't mean that everything has to be unicorns and rainbows, right? Mm-hmm. And that's also a bit of a fantasy, I think, that a lot of people will try to sell you in an ebook or something, mm-hmm. right? If you just do these three things, you'll, you know. Um, so I think there, there needs to be some truthfulness mm-hmm. in those discussions. Um, and that stuff is hard work, and it's frightening, and it's this or that, and I, and I think not everybody needs to, to move to Bali, or mm-hmm. live out of a suitcase, or become a digital nomad, mm-hmm. or, um, you know, it's, it's about being honest about what, what fills you up, what gives you energy, whether that's what work you're doing, what kind of life you're living, what kind of people you're hanging out with. Mm-hmm. So I guess my advice was, was figure out who you are. How do you figure out who you are? Mm-hmm. Well, because people are like following your passion, and I'm mm. like, I don't even know what I'm passionate about, right? I, I, yeah, I'm with you. And I did a 10 day meditation, I was like, oh, figuring it out myself. And sometimes you get more lost. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes it's like dots, mm-hmm. and in probably five, 10 years, you will look back and be like, okay, that makes sense. But like when you're walking through those dots, you're like, what the hell is happening? And I'm sure you went through the same process when you mm-hmm. were, took you five years to open Hubudu after you came to Bali. Right. Yes, it's true. It's true. I, I, I opened it a few years after we got here. I think it is... Um, so, yes, there's always a benefit in hindsight, right? So, looking back, you can connect the dots. I always say that you can't, um, you know, you can't see the picture if you're in the frame. You need perspective. And so, sometimes you need to get out of your own life. And so, whether that's your travel, for a lot of people, that's, that is. You know, there's, there's really something powerful in removing yourself from your context, right? And so, for me... Um, removing myself from Steve, the UN guy, 
Um, it took me somewhere between one and a half to two years, I always say, to recover from that to the point where I started to believe that I could do something else. Oh, wow. So when I left the UN, I actually then consulted for the UN, right? So I, I left, and then in a panic, six months later, I'm in Bali going, what have I done? You know, I'm here with no fam- with a family and no plan, right? So, and, and it just kind of happened naturally. I had contacts, I had relationships, and, and so I started picking up consulting work. And so I did that for two or three years with the UN. Um, but it... But it really felt, um, yeah, it really felt, it took a long time. To, to, so you had to, to believe before you could actually You had to believe it, and yeah. you had to start applying to other, because you're, I mean, in the UN, it's a, it's a certain context, there's mm-hmm. a certain environment, it's a certain mm-hmm. language. And so for me to get, um, to get out of that and be able to see how the skills that I have, what are, I would have had the hardest time telling you what I was good at even. I mean, honestly, like if someone said, what are you good at? Well, I can write effective project documents. I can mobilize resources. I couldn't even sometimes talk like a human. I would be in all like UNEs, you know, Um, because I learned how to succeed in that environment Mm -hmm. when I became out of that environment and I didn't have that familiarity around me. um, It was really scary, right? To then say, well, who am I and what can I bring to that situation or this situation? So that process, I think of like, that was probably important for me to to have that time here a little bit to get to know myself. Um, yeah. And, um, I mean, I'm going through the same phase, so I wanted to ask that question. So it is, I mean, a couple of years is a long time. Like, even if in my context, it doesn't seem like a long time, but just staying here without a plan for a couple of years is a long, long time. So mm-hmm. I'm sure there are times where you are kind of like, I wouldn't use the word depressed, but like you're probably really sad and you're like, what the hell am I doing with my life? Like, what did you tell yourself to get out of that funk? Mm, okay. Well, I think, um, yeah, I guess, I guess if I think about it, I did. Um, what did I tell myself? Or how did you, mm. like, what did you do to, you know, move forward instead of being stuck in that situation? Right. Well, I mean, I consulted, so I, I kind of, I guess I had that as a, you know, I wasn't kind of here sitting under a coconut tree yeah. doing mantras <laughs> all day. Um, there was a little bit of that for sure, uh, probably less than some, but um, I think it was, I don't know. I mean, I think it took a while for me where when I, the, the more I kept doing that thing and the more frustrated I kept getting with that thing, the more I kind of pushed away against that thing and the more it told me not necessarily what I wanted to do, but what I didn't want to do. Mm-hmm. And I think there was something motivating in realizing that I didn't want to, I didn't want to have to go back to that. You know, um, I mean, my career, my career uh, goals mm-hmm. are fairly are fairly narrow. I basically want to spend as little time as possible doing stuff I don't like. That's it. Mm-hmm. That's my job. Every every year is kind of to narrow down to the um, one thing. Yeah, I get get. I, I can do multiple things, but I I want to spend more time doing stuff I like and less time doing stuff I don't like. Mm. Just as simple as that, right? And by like, I mean it's not. What do I like? I love working. Mm-hmm. I love working. I, I don't like want to what I you know I don't want to spend the time at the pool or, or anything like that any more than that. It's more um, doing stuff where I feel like I'm really the best person in the world to be doing this thing. If you can find that thing. Your, you know, you know, if you can combine podcasting and your financial background and your kind yeah. of your heritage and your 
growing up stories and experiences mm. and whatever, you know, when, once you start kind of narrowing down at these things where it's like your unique combination of life experiences mm-hmm. um, allows you to be absolutely exceptional at this thing, mm-hmm. and that's the, that's the sweet spot. I want to go back to Hubud. Mm-hmm. Um, you said when you started Hubud, most people were like, oh, that's the overnight success. Mm-hmm. But you said, like, you're building communities for years and, like, you know, like doing network. How did Hubud come into existence? And, you know, what were the steps that you took mm-hmm. to make it such a huge success in just a mm-hmm. couple of years of its ex- existence? Well, you know, we did what we often tell other people to do now. So, um, what is Hubu? If people don't know okay. what Hubu is, how could people not know what Hubu is? Nah, come on, no. Uh, Hubu is a co- it stands for a hub in Ubud. So, Ubud is the town we're in now in Bali, um, which is you know renowned for for probably a century or more as being um, a very famous artistic and creative spot. Right. Yeah. So it's it's a really the art art and cultural capital of Bali, which mm-hmm. is kind of an arts and cultural capital. And eat pray love was shot here, so you know it's you know it's famous. So 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 basically, um, so Habanubut is uh, it's a co-working space. Uh, we've been open for five years and five days. Um, five years and five days. Five years and five days. Who's yeah. counting? Yeah, I know me every day. I'm ticking it off like on a prison wall. No. Um, so it's a it's a co-working space. Now you know when we opened, there was there was maybe one or two of them in the country, none in Bali. Um, and it was even a term that most people didn't know, even in bigger cities where they existed. It's, it's a relatively new yeah. formula, uh, uh, kind of format. So it's basically a collaborative shared office space with a strong focus on community. That's mm-hmm. how I would define a co-working space. Um, so people tend to, to become members rather than tenants. You know, um, there's different flexible options people can have. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a kind of an easy way to hop into a professional community. So. Um, yeah, so that's what Hubert is. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, how did you come up with an idea to create the first, you know, co-working space in Bali? I think it was um, so. My experience and the experience of, of the co-founders was um, a lot of people that end up in Bali are here at some kind of pivotal, transformative mm-hmm. point in their life, right? So I just left my career. Um, people take a sabbatical for a year, people are quit their jobs, sell their business, mm-hmm. what have you. So the, the kind of eclectic group of people that we met here was really, really um, interesting and exciting. Mm-hmm. So our question was, was if we could put these people that come from all countries, all industries, um, but have this common thread of being creative and motivated to try something new, mm-hmm. and if we could put them together, what would happen? That was the, the curiosity that, that sparked the conversation in the first place. In terms of how we did it, um, we had a couple of conversations. We didn't know each other very well, mm-hmm. um, but we liked the idea so much so quickly that after our third meeting in five or six days, we decided to uh, to prototype that. Mm-hmm. And we took over a cafe. We found a little cafe. We drove around for three or four days looking for venues. We found a little cafe that was... Um, it kind of worked for us space-wise, but it was it was kind of really quiet. There was nobody yeah. there. So we convinced the owner to let us basically take it over for two weeks. And uh, so we didn't pay the owner anything for it. We, But, you know, we said, hopefully we'll get a bunch of people in here yeah. eating and drinking. Um, so that was really good. So it was a bit of luck finding that place. And um, we spent $500. That was our budget to make the best co-working space we could. So we borrowed a lot of stuff. Borrowed a really fancy table for the mother table. Brought in my coffee machine, art books for a library, 
yada, yada. And we had nine events, I think, in two weeks. So wow. we really want to try different things. Um, and we had about 300 people come for that two-week period, right? How did you find the people? We basically didn't... We had a Facebook page, but we didn't really put much information on it. We kept it mysterious. We didn't create a web page, even though we could have. Um, we basically picked 15 people and invited them personally. Okay. Yeah, different people, different circles, different networks, um, but really made an appeal to them and, and kind of explained why we wanted to have them come and invited them to invite a few more people. And it wasn't exclusive. It wasn't like that. It was more selective in terms of how do we seed the community, right? And so, so we ran that for two weeks and, uh, it, you know, tons of people came. People were really excited about it. Nobody had the first clue what it was or why it was, but, it, you know, small town, people are like, something new, that sounds cool, I'll go there. Yeah. And so, um, so we did that and there was such a kind of a groundswell of excitement around it that over the next kind of eight months between that finishing and us opening, mm-hmm. um, we held an event every month. Oh, wow. Yeah, so it's called Pecha Kucha Night, which is like a rapid TED Talk. It's a global mm-hmm. global event. It happens in many cities. Um, and so we, we organized that once a month at an event venue. And, um, and it, you know, the first one had 100 people. The next one had 200 people. It, it really grew really quickly. Mm-hmm. So that was our primary way of talking to people in person, you know, so kind of selling the actual physical community that lived here on the idea, which is pretty tough because... Um, you know, I, I couldn't explain it. When yeah. People would ask, well, what's a co-working space? Well, it's an office space. Okay, what do I get there? Why would I pay you money instead yeah. of going to a cafe? And, you know, and me trying to be kind of have the confidence to sell a product that I really had a hard time understanding myself. Yeah. I mean, it was really... It was so new. It was so new. Yeah. And, and uh, so we had, some, we had some good help from other people. We had uh, Grace Sai, who was the founder in Hub Singapore, which is about nine months earlier than us, and she was very articulate about the whole co-working world so we got her to come in for one of the Pechacuchas and she gave a talk on co-working and, yeah. and, and, and you know, she probably was our best salesperson um, so in other words we asked for help in, in different ways and we got different people involved and um, so we just talked to people we probably had you know a hundred tours of the space before it opened we invited 25 people to be founding members and give us $500 or $1,000 for that uh, that thing that helped us build the cafe so what that meant is they became our advocates. They became our, our first community members, right? So, I mean, like you said, like you had a really hard time finding an identity after you left UN, and now you're an entrepreneur, and you're really good at what you do because, like, once I, I joined co-working space because I wanted to meet people because I'm a solo traveler in Ubud, yeah. and right away, like, I got an email, and, like, I learned about a Facebook community, then I found out there's an event every single day, and, like, in those events, I met people, so it, like, served my purpose of meeting new people, even if it's a co-working space, and people can get so much out of it, not just, you know, like, come here and work, so, like, how did you, like, what is entrepreneurship, and, like, how did you learn to be such a great entrepreneur? Mm. That's, that's funny. Um, that's a good question. So I'm not sure if I'm a great entrepreneur, uh, but I am I'm very passionate about what I do. So for me, I suppose, I think there's many different paths to kind of entrepreneurial realization of mm-hmm. something, right? There's different people, different profiles. I don't think an entrepreneur looks like him or her mm-hmm. or them. I think it really, you know, 
Um, and that goes back to knowing yourself, right? So it's like, I want to start a business about X. Well, how you, what your role is in that company, what kind of help you need to get, how you should approach it, and what you should focus on first. I, I think people are successful or not by the degree to which they focus on their strengths. Oh, wow. Right? So, like, um, I, I, a good explanation is, is a friend of mine who owned a, a large, maybe the largest PPC pay-per-click company in Australia. So very um, focused around Google AdWords and mm-hmm. all the ads you see. He basically helps companies do mm-hmm. those, manage their accounts. And so he'll say that in his first couple of years of running the company, he said, you know, I really fancied myself to be this jet-setting entrepreneur, the Richard Branson, et cetera, et cetera. And he said after learning about myself through different programs and personality tests and stuff, he said basically his profile in one of them called Love Dynamics was that of the mechanic, you know, very into systems, very into optimization, very into flows and how things work together. Not so much this like charismatic front man, right? Neither is better than the other. You know what I mean? You need is them it, both. Of yeah. course. Well, yeah. they're very, and you can find very successful entrepreneurs in all shapes and sizes, mm-hmm. right? So for him, when he essentially reoriented then how he worked in his own company, mm-hmm. what he outsourced, what he got help with, his company has then grown three or four times since that. Like that was when his company really became a successful company. So um, I think that's a, a huge part of it. So in terms of what, what makes an entrepreneur, I for me, what it is is what... What wakes me up in the morning is, is really um, seeing something come to life that, that before only existed in my head, right? Yeah. That's, the, that's the high, I guess. Mm-hmm. That's, the, that's the motivation um, where, and you know, the, the truth is I see stuff in my head all the time. So mm-hmm. idea formation, idea, that, that side of things I, I'm good at, as I think a lot of people are. Mm-hmm. Um, the execution part. The execution part. And the execution part is hard for me, right? I mean, I, I'm like, you know, I'm 40% into execution in my tendency is to move on to the next thing right because I, I operate some months in advance usually which which has its strengths but it also has its weaknesses so I think it's um, uh, yeah I mean for me they, they talk about the entrepreneurial journey and for me it has very much been a journey of uh, around self-learning so I, I started this company at the same time as I started a restaurant with another partner called the Living Food Lab it was a raw food vegan restaurant um, Are you vegan? I, uh, I was for a while <laughs> Um, I was for a while, and the I, I was I was kind of intrigued by it, mm-hmm. and then I've always been very health conscious, if mm-hmm. not always practicing in a good way, but mm-hmm. I, it's always there. And so, um, long story short, I have left that business, and with a lot of lessons in terms of I'm not good at the things I thought I was good at. Mm-hmm. When I when I kind of took that responsibility in that company and said, sure, I'll do these things, mm-hmm. um, and it was a, it was fairly disastrous. I mean, it was disastrous. Not that I didn't do well or well enough. It was more, um, I was very unhappy after a time in what I was doing, right? And so I was I was essentially, you know, leaving the office job, so to speak, to create this thing to still be unhappy in what I'm doing on a daily, daily basis, right? Um, so I think over time I have refined what I do within this company for sure. Um, and when I look at new things, I, I very much look at them through the light of, is this something that's going to give me energy or something that's going to take my energy away, yeah. right? When you talked about ego mentality, like, okay, is this serving my ego or is it actually serving me? Like, how did you come up with that realization? Is it through books or is it just through your experiences? More, I suppose, overall my experiences. Um, you know, I think it's... Uh, 
I think when I, I know that when I am in charge, and, and I don't mean am I managing people, more like when I am in kind of hyper control mode or hyper management mode or hyper, I'm going to bend the will of the universe to suit my desires, mm-hmm. um, I can make myself crazy. Mm-hmm. Right and and just you know you really end up chasing chasing your own tail and being really frustrated with everybody mm-hmm. being not happy with the outcomes of things and and again it's um, so when I when I'm trying to be that mm-hmm. person um, I just become less and less happy mm-hmm. and less and less effective ultimately right so I might you know there might be a time and a place for that you know we've got. Um, we've got an event tomorrow. Mm-hmm. We've got a really important event for us. It's really, it's actually on mindfulness. It's a search inside yourself. It was so a, from Google, right? From, it was yeah. a Google program that's now around the world, and we brought it to Indonesia. So, it's, I, I'm, I've heard so much about it. I did Vipassana, and there were girls who were doing this program. Amazing. Yeah. Okay. I, I mean, I'm so excited about yeah. it. Uh, I'm excited about doing it myself as yeah. a participant. So I'm not introducing anything tomorrow. I'm not. I am there. As a, I'm 100% there yeah. as, a, as a participant. Um, which I'm very excited about, and I and I'm excited about the fact that we've brought this kind of thing yeah. into the world. So you know, whatever we do that injects this kind of consciousness, I think this higher consciousness into the business world, I it really is a motivating factor for me. Um, so yesterday we found out that uh, there weren't, they were not going to be able to put chairs enough chairs in. It wasn't enough space. Let's say. Um, so we've got a lot of people, a lot of people flying in from actually other countries to, to yeah, participate in this. Yeah, it's a huge event. It's a big event, yeah. and, and it's, you know, we've capped at 100 people, and we're sold, we're, we're oversold, and we're done. Um, and so, but we're, we're, as of last night, we were not going to be able to deliver on what we Promise. promised. Yeah. So that, so then this morning, why I'm coming a little bit late and sweaty when, when I showed mm-hmm. up for this interview, was, was kind of me going and getting into hyper-management mode. Mm-hmm. Right and uh, being forceful and being, you know, mm-hmm. decisive and being and managing. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a time and a place for that, yeah. and this is a time for that. Yeah. But if I live like this and I manage my business like this and I interact with my team and my family and my community and my members like this, mm-hmm. um, it, it's not it's not for me, and it's, and it's not for anybody if they want to be healthy. So I think, um, you know, was it, you know, I guess I've had lots of experiences in my life that have have chipped away at the ego a little bit mm-hmm. um, where who was one of them the most important one I, I suppose moving to Bali and, and and having to having to introduce myself without saying and I used to work for the UN because that's what I wanted to say mm-hmm. you know probably that that that, sh- that change in my life where I was the international man of mystery to this kind of weird guy living in Bali and we're not sure what he's doing mm-hmm. you know, for a period of time um, yeah, I think that was hard. It was hard. It yeah. really was. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think I think we get all kinds of things. I think as parents, we get all kinds of lessons in. Mm-hmm. Um, that's like the biggest lesson as a parent. For sure, yeah. you know, and uh, that. Well, I think kids teach you humility all the time, yeah. right? And, and kids, you know, they push your buttons is kind of the wrong word, but they. Um, Sure they do. <laughs> well, they do. Yes, that that too. But uh, it's more like um, it's easy to feel inadequate as a parent. Mm. It's easy to feel like I have no idea what I'm doing, and I feel totally overwhelmed yeah. by this, right? Um, by this responsibility, by this change in my life. Um, so yeah, lots of lots of opportunities to, to have your ego squished. Well, that's just a rapid fire question. Um, okay. 
name big event tomorrow so I want to take as little time as possible um, if you want to recommend some books to our listeners what would it be Deep Work by I want to say Cal Newport okay. I might not get that wrong um, this is my current obsession right now is around um, how to deal with being productive and truly productive um, how do we produce meaningful work of value in a world where our attention is always fractured and broken into pieces by mainly our phones and our computers and our constant onness um, but we've really we is a big word but um, let's say it's very common that people are feeling very stressed out I think by the fact that they're not being productive but they're so so busy all the time yeah. right so deep work is a really kind of meaningful exploration of that busy is good for ego too absolutely absolutely yeah well I mean it's funny We our ego gets rewarded in lots of ways email rewards our ego <laughs> it feels like we've done something yeah right um, when in fact most of emailing is not a productive use of time for a, an intelligent human being yeah right um, Especially and, in big offices. Well, I'm sure you got a lot of emails in UN. I just this week talked to uh, my former boss yeah. at, at the UN. She's still at the UN in Bangkok. And so we were just talking, literally, that's, that was yeah. the subject of our call. So we might do some work with them because they're um, really around that, this yeah. kind of thing. Of everybody is pathologically unhappy with the situation, but nobody really takes steps to change it. There's mm. some kind of weird reward system we get from the feeling. Yeah productive by doing these little transactional things, mm-hmm. right? And so um, I see it in my team, like we have this discussion a lot, we're like, I feel so busy and I feel so like this, but, I, but I'm still not doing this thing, and I, and I feel this way too, right? This is where it comes from for me. So um, so I'm really kind of delving into that, and then it seems to just keep coming up in conversations I'm having, books that are coming up to me. And so this this one is, for me, my, my book of the month, Deep Work. Um, on the opposite side of that, I'm also reading a Tim Ferriss book. I love him. Yeah, he's great. I mean, he's just, he's, um, he occupies his own space, yeah. really. And so I'm reading um, The Tools of Titans. Which is, and uh, so it's been a while since I've read a Tim Ferriss book, but uh, that is going on in my head right now, and it's fantastic. Were you a four hour work week guy? No, I, uh, but we benefited tremendously from it. So, yeah. I mean, they sent us our first hundreds of clients probably, right? So when, when we asked people who came in at the beginning, 2013, 2014, um, who were digital nomads, yeah. before I guess we became known as this digital nomad hub, um, and I always asked them, you know, what was the turning point mm-hmm. in your life? And for a lot of people, it was the four-hour work week, yeah. right? So I read the four-hour work week after, I guess. Yeah. I was I was well into this side of things. Um, and I didn't agree with everything for sure. There was some parts I found problematic, but I really appreciated... Like, I really, and when I say I really appreciate it, I really appreciate it, uh, parts of it, for sure. Do you think someone can be a great entrepreneur by working four hours a week? <laughs> Why not? As I said, different paths to, different paths to it. And, and here's the thing. Tim Ferriss doesn't work four hours a week. Oh, right? No, no way, right? So he, but, I mean, you know, what he was saying was, you know, if you can squeeze all your work through efficiency, through automation, through systems, through um, outsourcing effectively... Um, you know, you can squeeze it down to the smallest box possible. And so if that's how you feel about your work, Mm -hmm. i.e. I want to squeeze it into the smallest box possible, then I think it's great, right? For other people that are maybe doing work they feel more connected with and might want to to spend more time on Mm -hmm. that in the week in a different way, but... um, but I, I mean, for him, it wasn't. I think it was. It was more an ends to the means, where if you get rid of this thing that produces income mm-hmm. for you, 
you get the income, which allows you to do other things in your life that you're passionate about. So the whole lifestyle design thing, I, I think, is is a is really a lesson for everybody. Um, my takeaway from it is this idea of living intentionally, yep. right? And so whether that's quitting and going and doing this thing, or whether it's staying where you are and being really happy where you are, that it all comes back to knowing who you are, knowing what makes you happy, not feeling guilty about that, mm-hmm. not feeling less than, mm-hmm. you know. Um, I mean, when I go back to Canada, there's people that apologize to me about their lifestyle, you know? Like, they feel weird, I make them feel uncomfortable, because they're like, well, I would like to travel more. And, but it's like, I mean, for me, I don't I don't think about it like that yeah. at all. I just think about it as is, whatever makes you happy, yeah. whatever fills you up. Yeah. You know, so. What advice would you give to your 25-year-old self? Probably like landmines. Mm-hmm. No, I was, I was in. Uh, I guess I was in. Yeah, I guess I would have been coming into Sri Lanka. Um, you too belong here. Mm-hmm. You know, I think. Um, I think I spent a lot of time feeling like an imposter, feeling like I didn't belong, mm-hmm. feeling like other people knew more than I did, mm-hmm. feeling like there was some kind of manual to life that mm-hmm. I missed that handout time. Um, you know, and I can still feel like that now, but I think that was much more pronounced when I was 25, where I always felt like I was, I was trying to prove something or trying to, um, yeah. So I, I suppose if I could convey the feeling of you're okay, you belong in this world, in this life, then I think that would be something my 25 year old would have benefited from. What's your definition of courage? Doing it anyways. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning into this podcast. If this podcast has added value in your life in any way, shape, or form, then please, please, please subscribe on iTunes and leave a comment so I can have more amazing guests like Steve. And I will talk to you guys next week.